Hello and welcome to the show. This is the second of a two-part series about how to get a job in product. In my last episode, I spoke to a career coach about how to get your resume in order. But what happens after that? Tonight, we're going to find out. But before we do that, make sure you pop over to onenightinproduct.com where you can find fantastic episodes with fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and most importantly, make sure you never, ever miss another episode again. So yes, on tonight's episode, we'll be talking to a recruiter about all things recruitment. How's the job market these days? What are some of the things to think about when going for that next product leadership job? What about when you're hiring for it? And how can we make sure that companies hire diverse teams? If you want to find out whether the gender pay gap is getting better or worse, stay tuned to One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Chris Mason. Chris is a Liverpool Football Club fan, avid mountaineer and former typist for Weetabix, who's now moved away from inky ribbons and tipex into the high-altitude world of executive recruitment. When he left uni, Chris worked on an ocean liner, but he's now charting a course for his candidate pipeline and aiming to place VPs and C-level executives at the captain's table across scale-ups and blue chips, including some of our very own VPs of product, and long rumoured to exist, but infrequently spotted in the wild chief product officers. Let's hope they've got their sea legs. Hi, Chris. How are you tonight? <laughs> very good. Very good. And I had no idea you were going to say all of that. I'd actually forgotten that we had all of that on our website, but all of it's true. All of it's true. <laughs> I like to make sure that everyone has the the full view of everything about <laughs> you and see beyond the recruitment consultant. So first things first, you're the co-founder of Intelligent People. And we talked about that a little bit in the intro, but specifically what problem does Intelligent People solve for me? And I guess also importantly, how are you solving it? So if you're hiring or looking for a product team or a product leader, we've specialized in that space for more than 20 years. So not a lot of recruiters really understand that space. We've got a huge network, a strong brand, a very strong footprint. And that means that we can, we can solve recruitment problems very quickly. So we can search for, engage, um, and deliver very quickly. So for contingency recruitment, usually we, we know people straight away. And we can deliver retained search projects within four to five weeks, which is very, very rapid for a research project. Yeah, no, that sounds really good. But I guess one question that comes off the back of that, and certainly some of the people that I've dealt with in the past when I've looked for jobs, is sometimes you get like the almost like the dumb pipe recruitment agent who just kind of just passes you through to people. And then you get almost like your full service almost they're the hiring manager themselves trying to do all of the work and actually really consultatively go and take their clients on a journey. Are you more in the latter camp? Yeah, I, I definitely say that. And the reason we're like that is because we get better outcomes. And you know yeah. that means that we win as a business and our clients win and our candidates win. So we fix a lot of problems on the way. So right from the outset, we're helping to understand how big the candidate pool is. We're giving advice around that, around the brief, around the process around the price point um, and try and work with our clients to make sure that everything's realistic and achievable and deliverable. So yeah, very much so. Excellent. Well, hopefully some people feel inspired to come your direction. But I noticed you're concentrating on leadership roles. So the aforementioned VPs of product, CPOs, directors of product, not much love for the individual contributor cohort there though. So is there a specific reason that you've kind of stuck to the top end and the executive end of the market? Is there more for you to do there or have you had bad experiences with individual contributors in the past or some other reason? 
Yeah, so so we do help with experienced hires as well. So we grew up as a contingency recruitment business, and you know we do help with experienced hires, but we're increasingly focused on executive and leadership. Often, it's a really big pain point for our customers. So usually, they're looking for a very specific impact from a, a leadership hire. It might be that they're looking for a certain type of experience, or they're going through a scaling journey, or there's a problem that they need someone to come in and fix. And because it's the top of the triangle, it's a smaller candidate pool, the way that you approach and engage candidates like that, turn their heads, get them excited about the opportunity is, you know, it has to be done in the right way. Otherwise, things could go wrong and actually you don't solve the problem. But that's interesting when you're talking about turning heads though. So is a lot of what you do then headhunting or have you also got like a book of people that you kind of just call on whenever there's good opportunities that you think match like? Do you do both of those things? Well, both, but even with our network, I'd, I'd argue that we're still headhunting because we may know people and they may actually be happy, happily engaged in something. But our role is to go in and position an opportunity and get them excited about it so that we can, we can get them in play and we can, we can start to talk to them and you know, assess them and make sure that there's a, a match, a skills match and a kind of a desire match from the candidate side as well. Excellent. But I know my boss listens to this podcast from time to time. So I'm going to choose my words very carefully here. But how is the product leadership job market out there right now? I mean, are there lots of jobs going? So the last 12 months has been incredible. You know, it's been the busiest market I can ever remember in my entire recruitment career since I left the ship. <laughs> but right now, the last two, three weeks, it's it's probably the strangest period ever. And we're obviously going to go into a recession. There's a cost of living crisis. There's lots of macroeconomic problems. There's a war and some fuel poverty coming. And that's bound to have an effect. And we've started to see some of that with tech firms laying people off. Yeah. But there's still a lot going on and there's a lot of action there. I think right now, we've got the biggest holiday season for years. <laughs> so, Oh, yes. Yeah. So if you think if you think about 2020, no one went on holiday. 2021, we had a lockdown in Q1 in the UK. Uh, many other parts of the world were locked down. Some people ventured abroad. But this year is the time when everyone, every, this is pent up kind of frustration and people are desperate <laughs> to get on a plane. And it's happening right now. And we've seen it across the board. So all of the campaigns that we've got ongoing, you know, they're all being impacted by it because people are away. So it's a very strange time right now. We know that there's huge demand there and our clients are talking about what they're going to be doing in two, three, four weeks' time when everyone's back in place. So it's still good. It's still is a good market, I would say. Oh, excellent. Well, that's uh, hopefully inspiring for some people out there when they get back off the beach. But you've personally been in the game for around 20 years now, like you say, and I know that you don't just concentrate on product roles, but it's obviously a big part of what you do. I think it's fair to say that product management has changed a lot over that 20 years. I mean, I'd say 20 years ago, books like Inspired were barely a twinkle in Marty Kagan's eye, let alone all the other great thinking that's come out ever since then, and the way that product management as a practice has evolved. So how have some of those changes manifested themselves for you and your company from a recruitment perspective? Like, Has it changed things a lot, or are there some kind of universal truths that have remained the same throughout? Yeah, so there have been huge changes. I mean, right from the very early days, we, you know, when we first started to come across our first product manager roles, they were probably people that were repurposed and maybe reported into someone in IT or possibly someone in marketing. Yep. 
So I think the big change, and it's been a gradual change through the years, and you know, it's been supported by incredible podcasters. And yeah, I've heard of those. <laughs> you know, like the product movements, like Mind the Product with their Product Tank meetups and Jam London and Women in Product. There are lots of them now. I think the big change is that the profile of product management and the impact it's making, and that that's affected the the kind of the triangle of leadership. So, you know, there are increasingly more and more senior product managers and product leaders. And if you, uh, so, so it's created this kind of new new senior category that's been a gradual thing of product leadership. And organizations now, you know, they describe themselves as product-led, where <laughs> product thinking should be front and center, where they're questioning what they're doing and what's the purpose of what they're doing and what customer problems are they solving and how are they developing business cases. And organizations didn't think like that 20 or 30 years ago. You know, it's often IT-driven and yeah. very, very different. So that's one of the main changes, the elevation of product as a discipline. And increasingly, it's becoming a, a strategic leadership role with a team delivering beneath it. So I think that's one of the main changes that we've seen. That product-led thing is really interesting, though, because you don't have to go too far on the social media sites, you know, Twitter specifically, to see lots of people complaining about how not product-led they are and how much of the old thinking is still there and how they're struggling to make an impact. Is that something, I mean, I guess you're working with the companies ideally that do something that, in a way that you believe enables the candidates that you send across to make an impact. But I'm assuming there are people coming into you like on the inbound pipeline that maybe are working for some of those companies. Is that true? Like, Are there loads of people coming in looking to you to basically get them a better life in an actual company that's doing things quote unquote properly? Or is it a real mix? Yeah, it is a mix. And there are, you know, there are lots of drivers for people looking for new opportunities. But if we look at it the other way around, sometimes we have organizations that they say they're looking to go through a transformation. They want to become more product-led. They're looking for a product leader. And that product manager is reporting into, say, a chief technology officer. And candidates hate that. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's really difficult. So product should be a standalone function driving the agenda with technology as a partner and a stakeholder. Yeah. Plugged into the CEO and the commercial leadership above them. And ideally, they're part of that group. So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, if you look at, let's say, West Coast US companies, often you see a product, you know, a chief product officer as one of their very, very senior leadership. I mean, they say a lot of change happens there first, and then it kind of ripples across the globe. And increasingly, we're seeing that across Europe and across Asia and other parts of the world. So, yeah, products definitely being elevated and product culture and product thinking is becoming more prevalent, I would say. What sort of size would you say that a company that's maybe trying to get that first VP or CPO role? into the business like what kind of size is that in your experience i mean we talked about how you're looking at scale ups and blue chips so that really rules out maybe early startups is that fair like you're you're working with the scale ups as they've kind of got past that first tricky phase they've maybe found product market fit and that's the point that you get these senior hires in yeah so there's usually i'd say a, a couple of drivers because if you think about it the founders of the business are usually the you know they're the product leaders aren't they from the ground up Yep. So they're the ones that build out the product and test it and have all those early learning experiences and try and figure out the product market fit. So there's usually two drivers. The first is the founders are just being pulled in different directions and they recognize that they can't do a good job and they, and they need a, you know, a product leader to come in and really take over the reins. 
And that, that presents different problems because we, we all, when we're in that situation, we're talking to the founder of a business, we're always saying, are you really ready to hand, o- you know, hand over the reins here? <laughs> you know? So that's, that's the first thing. Often organizations, when they go into a funding round, they're kind of told by the investors it's conditional that they appoint a product leader because yeah. maybe they recognize that the CEO is going to be pulled in different directions or maybe that's not their core strength. They might be strong in other areas and a product leader would come in and, to be frank, do a, do a better and more effective job at the phase of growth that they're going into. And so that means different things for different organizations. It depends how, you know, how much traction they're getting, how much revenue they're getting, how much funding they're getting. So it's not necessarily linked to headcount, but but yeah, it's usually one of those two reasons. You know, the founder recognizing or being told that he needs to, <laughs> he needs he needs some help. <laughs> but we said earlier on that from a product perspective, you're concentrating on that top end, and these days, obviously, that includes people like CPOs, maybe even CPTOs, depending on the organization. But if we consider that top position, then historically, product teams have often found themselves kind of underrepresented at that top table. And when they get there, they don't always seem to have the relevant chops to make a good impact. Now, you kind of touched on it a little bit about how that's somewhat changing and how there's maybe more of an appetite for that senior level role. But do you feel that there's a good pipeline of, shall we call it, product practitioners making it into that role? Or do you feel that it's, as you see in many companies still, this almost non-product but pretty good strategy person industry expert type that's coming in to lead it from the executive level yeah so we definitely see some of that and you know strategy people maybe coming into product management it's usually not their first role so usually they come in and get some experience they get some domain experience and develop their product skills before moving on upwards but if you get to the point where there is a you know fairly sizable organization and there's a very very senior product leader, usually they're arguing for massive and scary levels of investment. You know, so, <laughs> so they're trying to take commercial stakeholders and investors and internal execs on a journey where there's behind a business case that they've developed. And sometimes the stakes are really, really high. So it's a very important and big role. And, and that type of role, you could argue, it is a little bit different to a product leader who's leading a team who's building stuff. So we see two profiles. We see people that come up through the ranks and, you know, they've got this ability and affinity to do that more strategic influencing business case, high stakes kind of product leadership. I think that's why sometimes we see people coming from strategy backgrounds in, into product. And, it, you know, you look at them and think, how did you get there? You know, you haven't, you haven't <laughs> built up your trade. And, but yeah, you, you could think of them as, as, as kind of different roles because it's more strategic and stakeholders and reassuring people that this huge investment is the right thing to do. And, then you've got product because product people, I think they just love building stuff. They love they like doing stuff that's impactful and taking it to market and seeing the impact and the effect of it. And did it work? You know, and do we need to improve, enhance, and kill or test or whatever? So yeah, there's perhaps different types of profile. Yep. So we should all care a little bit less about what we're building and a lot more about our stakeholders. Is the long and short of it there? If you want to get into that role, which you might not enjoy, <laughs> you know, I'm sure it's not for everyone. Well, that's the thing, like if you spend so long wanting to get into the room and then you get in the room and you realize that you didn't really want to be in that room in the first place, right? So it's all about picking where it is you want to play. It is. And, that, and that's really difficult because that takes massive self-awareness Yeah, because often people are just hugely driven and they think that's the next step for me. What's my progression? What's my progression? As opposed to pausing and thinking, actually, what do I enjoy? You know, what, what do I love? 
And it's really challenging to recognize when you kind of need to stop. <laughs> you know, they often say that people get promoted to their point of maximum incompetence. Yeah, the pizza principle, right? Yeah. And, and that, that's really difficult uh, because you should be happy at work and you should do what you love. And recognizing when you're at that point, you know, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing that you're not continuing to move up. But I think it's fair to say that product management job titles are more or less a car crash. Or they certainly, they can be. I mean, one person's CPO is another person's VP, is another person's director of product, is another person's head of product, is another one's chief product owner or whatever you get to see out there in the job specs these days. But based on what you see and the types of roles that you look at and the types of positions that you hire for, is there any actual rhyme or reason to this? Or do people, in your opinion, just pick whatever job title sounds best or that they feel that they could pay the minimum amount that they want for that role? Yeah, I'd say a, a bit of both. So some organizations, you know, <laughs> they try and, yeah, sorry, I'm trying to, I'm not, I'm not trying to be political deliberate. You sound like a product manager yourself there. It <laughs> depends. It's pretty cool. I've been in the environment too long. <laughs> you know, so uh, large organizations, they have to have a grading system probably because they have to show progression and reward people for success and so on. And there's got to be a label attached to that probably. For some organizations, so you just look at a job title and think, what? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, what we try and do is just boil it down to what do you need them to do? What's the scope of the role? What impact are you looking for? You know, another good question is how big's the team? Because that dictates the, the level of person and the type of person. So if it's a product leader with a team of four, they're still really close to the detail and they're getting their hands dirty. If it's someone with a product team of 20 or 30, then that's getting into a different type of profile and more strategic and more influencing and stakeholder management. The sort of thing that some people would love, but other product people would just hate. <laughs> but yeah, we, we're just amazed with job titles sometimes. And, <laughs> but if you look at the big fan companies, the guys there, they just tend to say, hey, I'm product at Facebook. Yep. They don't tend to, you know, we've done a lot of work with those types of organizations over the years. And a senior product manager is like a director somewhere else. Yeah. So yeah, there's no sense. There isn't this industry standard. Definitely not. Yeah, I think it was Stripe where basically every single level is just called product manager, which I think is definitely uh, an interesting one because on the other hand, you have people, maybe traditionally thinking people, but you still do have people that kind of want to see some kind of job progression and some career ladder that they can move up, right? And I guess whilst there are grades and there are money and there's responsibility, you've still got this kind of almost... Maybe it's like a show title in a way, like you know, something that can show what you are, but it's still important to some people and i guess that's really my next question because some people will say that job titles don't matter and that it's all about what you do and the level of impact that you have and all of that good stuff and now i would love for that to be true but i've personally been in interview processes before where titles seemed very much to matter like they'd be interviewing you for a particular role and they'd say oh well you've not had that role before or something along those lines and that's me, a middle-aged white guy that's never been discriminated against in my life because that's not possible. Yeah. Let alone what it must be like for someone from an underrepresented minority that's trying to get ahead and prove themselves in an already hostile job market. Yeah. So from your perspective, do you think the job titles do matter? And I guess I'm specifically thinking about when you're job hunting for that next role. Yeah. So uh, again, you know, there are two sides to this coin. So some yes. people, yeah. <laughs> So some people are less bothered. Like you say, they're focusing on the scope of what they're doing, what the challenge is, what's in the roadmap, what impact are they going to make. Other people, that progression really matters to them. And if they feel that outwardly, maybe on LinkedIn, they're taking a more junior job title, 
that, that bothers them. And uh, I'm not going to say there's a, a right or a wrong. It's a challenge that we often have. And some organizations have strict titles and some that's a bit more flex and we can shape them to mold around the candidate a little bit. But I guess talking about, it, it's interesting with salary, you know, when you're talking about job title and salary, and we're seeing this more now with women. And it's been in the press a lot about how women maybe shouldn't reveal the package that they earned previously because you're potentially perpetuating historical gender-based salary discrimination. Yeah. And we ask the question, but we don't. We definitely don't push for that. And we really try and focus on actually what are we looking for in this role? What experience do we need? Does this candidate have it? And then we will urge our clients to interview candidates alongside other people without that data point if we think the candidate is right. And the thinking is, if the candidate can do the role, they should be paid a fair salary. And we shouldn't think about what they've earned before. No, absolutely. Although that's an interesting point there, because of course, I completely understand and agree that, of course, if a woman has been paid 10% less or whatever the percentage is these days, I'm sure it's not pretty, whatever it is, but if they're being paid less and then they're saying what they're paid, then maybe certain types of employer may well be tempted to just continue to pay them less. And I guess the question there is, from your perspective, is there any moral obligation for you to, for example, if someone does tell you that they're earning X and you know that the role is going up to Y to basically, for want of a better word, lie and say, hey, they're actually being paid somewhere between X and Y or even all the way up to Y. Like, How much would you feel comfortable effectively misrepresenting someone's salary to get them a fairer deal at their new place? Yeah, so we'd never do that. So we, we, all, we always say... <laughs> That's the official line, right? No, no, it's, it's genuine. So I, I, I always say people should live clean because, you know, you might end up getting a job with a regulated business that does forensic background checks. So always live clean. Yeah. But I do think it's okay to say, I don't want to reveal that information. I'd like you to look at my experience and interview me and assess me against competencies. And if you think I'm the best candidate, you should offer me the salary for the role. And it's difficult for us, you know, we, so recruitment companies, on the one hand, they get panned because employers always <laughs> think we're talking up salaries because marginally we make a bit more commission. But I, I would say genuinely, we're not bothered about that. It's more important for us to, to solve the problem and place the person and from our perspective, earn the fee. So we try and bring the sides together. But it's difficult when we see that someone has been underpaid and if they do reveal salary information and we supply it to the client because we're asked to, the client's trying to squeeze them, saying, oh, that candidate's a bit cheaper. Yeah. And that's not how it should be. So, yeah, it's difficult. I think this is changing. The ground here is changing quite quickly, and I think it's a really good thing. And I think we'll see more and more women refusing to reveal their salary. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we should just look at people's experience and just think what's competitive. And if a candidate doesn't want to accept a job at a certain level, then they'll look elsewhere. But will you share, for example, the range up front as a matter of course with these people? Or is that something that varies a lot between companies as well? So for example, for women's coming in at 20% lower or whatever the, again, very unpretty percentage is, would you advise them off the bat about what that range should be or what they should be going for? Or do you very much leave that up to them? Yeah, we do. So we do leave that up to them. So we never, we never try and talk people up with their expectations, but we, we listen to them and ask what they're looking for. And then we introduce them on that basis if we think that they're a good match and they're at the right price point. 
fair enough. But I guess one question, though, off the back of that, obviously you've got a lot of inputs both from the hiring side and from the candidate side. So you know, at least when the information is revealed, what the pay of the different candidates that come into the company, you know, what they're currently on. And you also, of course, know what the roles that you're matching people up with, what they're paying. Mm. I'm going to hopefully not naively assume that the roles that you're hiring for aren't, for example, advertising different pay rates for different people. But I'm sure you've got lots of data points from the candidates that you do get that information for to give you a really good, strong sense about how the gender pay gap specifically is going. Like, as far as you're concerned, you say it's changing. Is it getting better at all? Or is it so variable or so random that you can't even really make a decent judgment? Or is it even getting worse? No, I, I think it's getting better. I, I don't think we're there yet. And I think we're getting better because organizations have a, a, you know, an increasing focus on D&I. And there are DNI requirements that come from the top down. So it's driven by, you know, if they're a listed business, it's a requirement. And increasingly, private businesses that take on investment, when they pitch to investors, they have to have a slide on DNI. And for medium and larger organizations, it's really challenging for them if they have people who are doing like for like work and there's a big pay disparity. And you look at that person and it's, they're from a minority group. So that's something I think is changing. I think with smaller organizations, there's maybe less transparency and but I think it definitely is changing and it is improving, although I wouldn't say we're there yet because we still see we, – we talk to candidates and they reveal their salary and we're like, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, we need, to, we need to help you. <laughs> yeah. No, well, hopefully in a few years' time, we'll be a little bit better. I mean, have you any idea, gut feel, how many years until we're substantially better or is it, again, really difficult to say? <laughs> it's a good question. It's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think that Personally, I think that the law needs to change around things like maternity, paternity leaves. I think we need to find a better balance there because I think that that creates a challenge where one parent takes time out of work for a period of time and their, their career is kind of effectively paused. And I think, we, I think it's a cultural change as well. I think it should be more acceptable that after a period of time, the, you know, the father, if it's, you know, shares in the parental leave in a bigger way. But um, that's part cultural. It needs, there needs to be legislation. And I think that will help gender pay disparity as well. Oh, no, absolutely. The struggle continues. But we can't talk about job specs without considering some of the general unconscious bias, aside from pay, the general unconscious bias that can slip in. Now, there are obviously loads of wild claims out there about AI and applicant tracking systems. And I saw something today about facial scanning that happens in interviews to make sure that you're engaged enough and all of that stuff. And Scary. Well, yeah, but I'm sure some of that does exist. But also humans have proved through time immemorial that they don't need technology to discriminate against people. Right? It's perfectly possible to discriminate against candidates without any AI at all. I guess the question from that is, from your perspective, what are some of the approaches that people, and by people I mean hiring managers, the companies themselves, like, what can they do to make sure that they're actually developing a good, diverse, inclusive talent pipeline and not just getting the same old possession of old faces that they would have always got back in the day? It's a really good question. I think there's two things I'd say. The first is you've got to know what you're looking for and what you're measuring in your candidates. So that starts with reflecting on what you need the person to do and what impact you're looking for. And then you have to draw up a list of competencies. So competencies that 
relate to experience or skills that you're looking for in the person. And then you have to grade against that. So you have to use data. So that's the way of getting more to, to, to a more scientific way. And, you know, it's not perfect, but it's more scientific than using gut feel and having a chat, seeing if you like someone. <laughs> the other thing I'd say is there's a movement now towards hiring for not fit. You know, it's been written about quite a lot. And if you think about historically, organizations would say, we want someone who's a good culture fit. And that can be really bad. I mean, that, what, what does that even mean? Yeah. Does that mean we want people that are like us? <laughs> so if you've got a, a room full of you know, middle-aged white men, does that person have to fit in with you? So I think recognizing that from the start is really, really important. And I think you know, there is data. I'm, I'm trying to dig into this so I can get something more concrete. But I think there's data starting to emerge that diverse product teams get better commercial impacts. Yeah. And the theory is you've got a more diverse group, you've got a bigger spectrum of ideas. By its very nature, you should have more conflict, which is something, you know, it's a challenge for a product leader because, you know, you have to encourage people to listen as well as talk and recognize that sometimes they won't always have the best idea and manage that conflict. But you'll be more creative if you've got people with different backgrounds with different perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. And there's kind of the two arguments there which have come up on this podcast before. There's the one that it's the business right thing to do because, again, as you say, you get better outcomes and you probably make more money and can serve more people and scale the business and all of that good stuff. But it's also just the morally right thing to do as well, which I think is yeah. something that's really important. But do you feel then, based on the candidate pipeline, that you see the people you're talking to, the candidates you're placing, that the general mix of the types of people that are getting into these companies is becoming more diverse? I mean, I guess you can only speak for the countries that you serve, but even within those countries, or even if it's just this country, how is that going? Is it is it on the up or is it still is there still lots of work to do there as well? Yeah, I, I would say it's definitely on the up. And, you know, one good indication is that we're told by clients often that they have a diversity challenge with underrepresented groups. And that's great. You know, it's great to hear that. Now, you know, we always try and shortlist the best people, of course, but the good thing is product is, it is more diverse than, say, tech. So, you know, you have some really great, strong women product leaders and product managers and people from different underrepresented groups as well. So I think it is improving and we're certainly asked about it a lot and we're asked to present diverse shortlists. So, you know, we actually sponsor and support women in product and try and think about our channel to marketplace when we're trying to engage candidates and how we can make sure that we're engaging every group across the spectrum to try and be diverse in the work that we do as well. Oh, excellent. And as we say, the struggle continues. <laughs> right. So to wrap up then, I'd like to get some advice, two pieces of advice from you actually. And I'm sure some of the stuff we've talked about already could be construed as advice, but let's get specific. I want two pieces of advice from you. The first piece of advice is some advice that you'd give to hiring manager company founder and executive within a scale-up that's considering their next big product hire. The stakes are pretty high, as you touched on earlier. And of course, it's difficult to be generic. But what's one key principle or one piece of advice that you think that person should hear from you? Oh, that's really mean. So if you're going to make me pick one, yes, I would say... It's all about prioritization. You said you're a product manager. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. So 
The one piece of advice I'd give, and it's because I think that it's something that organizations struggle with, is understand your candidate sentiment. So whoever it is that's doing that, whether it's a you know, recruitment partner or an internal talent person or someone within the product team, stay close to your candidates and understand their sentiment. Because if a candidate, for whatever reason, is leaning in a different direction, because there's something else that appeals to them elsewhere, or they feel they've got a better opportunity, you've got a problem. And we see time and time again. So it's something that we obsess about. And we see time and time again that a candidate might be incredible. They might be really relevant. The client loves them after a first interview, say. And the candidate just has other things they prefer. Now, in our experience, that candidate will not accept a, a, you know, an offer. But the client tends to fast track them and <laughs> park anyone else that's in process, <laughs> get to the final stage. And that's when they waste a huge amount of time. So be realistic and understand your candidate sentiment is the thing that I would, the, the one piece of advice I'd say, if you maybe pick one. There you go. <laughs> well, that's, that's good advice on that angle. But then from the other flip side, I want one piece of advice that you would give a candidate. So maybe someone who's trying to get that CPO role or just get that next good looking senior product role. And again, difficult to be generic. And again, you do have to choose one, one piece of advice for that person to help them make a splash when they're trying to get that next senior role. So I would say this is the thing that's going to get you started in the process, which is LinkedIn. Uh, the classic. Yeah, I, I would say make sure that you're continually updating and engaging on LinkedIn, whether you're looking for a job or not. In fact, you should do it all the time, because if you do it when you're looking for a job, it's a massive red flag, you know, so... <laughs> Whenever you do a new project, whenever you, you, know, you change roles or do something else, make sure you're updating LinkedIn. Make sure it's rich in content because your network and people who are targeting you as a candidate will be able to find you more easily and see the things that you've done and what you're interested in. If you're quite sparse in the data that's on your LinkedIn profile, it's very difficult to understand what you've done. And you'll either be targeted with stuff that isn't relevant, which will annoy you, or you just won't be contacted at all. So make sure the data is right. Make sure the data is rich. And I'm coming to the one piece of advice now. Uh, you're trying to slip more than one in. I know what you're doing. <laughs> it, it's make sure your LinkedIn profile says whether you're open to opportunities or not. So when the time is right, your LinkedIn profile is up to date, switch that to open to opportunities. And then that should get you organic opportunities from your network, from ex-colleagues, and from organizations that are targeting you as well. Get that pipeline flowing. Definitely. But we, on both of those points, you've been very mean making me pick one for each. We've got lots of advice on our website so in, in various areas. So have a look there. Well, that's going to be my next question, in fact. So you've talked about your website. So including your website, where can people find you after this if they want to chat about recruitment, get some of that advice, talk about their next move, or maybe even try and find out if they can beat your typing speed? <laughs> yeah, they'll definitely be able to do that. I got kicked out. <laughs> so our website is intelligentpeople.co.uk you can see our latest opportunities there we've got lots of candidate and hiring advice we've got information on interims interim rates ir35 and what that means or you can connect to me on linkedin i really love connecting and talking to people so just drop me a note and reach out or my email is chrismason at intelligentpeople.co.uk there you go hopefully competing recruitment agencies won't start signing you up for loads of mailing lists I wish you hadn't said that. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll link that all into the show notes and hopefully you get a long line of people queuing up to find out more and keep that pipeline as uh, flowing as it needs to be. 
well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really glad we could find the time to hopefully inspire a few people to think about hiring or going for jobs slightly better. Hopefully we can stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Jason. Great to talk to you. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the baby list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.